Hallowed Ground, a podcast about place. The Psychogeography of Sedgemoor. I grew up on the Somerset Levels, an area of artificially drained marshland in the heart of the county. As a boy, I would walk and cycle along the fields and back lanes of the patchwork of villages, and something of the levels remains with me today. Although I did not know it at the time, the psychogeographical impact was immense. Somerset is so named because in the summertime, the people would come down from the higher ground to the marshier land below, which was now drier. Our family home was situated on Sedgemoor, a land full of history and mystery. It was where, in the tiny hamlet of Athelney, King Alfred the Great built a great fort as he rallied his troops to prepare for a fierce final battle against the heathen army. Furthermore, Sedgemoor was the site of the last battle fought on English soil, when the Duke of Monmouth, a pretender to the English crown, returned from exile on the continent and raised a peasant army to challenge the king. Today, the ghost of the ill-prepared amateur army are said to roam the farmland where the battle raged over 300 years ago. But these are not the only ghosts of Sedgemoor. Many strange happenings and hauntings have been reported across the levels. My favourite tale concerned the pursuit of an old lady, assumed a witch, by patrons of a local pub in the 1700s. In this episode of Hallowed Ground, we will explore this and more. King Alfred the Great A mile or two from my childhood home lies the village of Athelney, where King Alfred the Great built a fortress. Sedgemoor was not yet drained at that time, so the village was an island surrounded by marshes. At this time, the Viking King Guthrum ruled which was then known as the Danelaw, which covered much of northern England, as well as parts of Mercia and Northumbria in the late 9th century. Guthrum coveted the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex, ruled by Alfred. Guthrum's Vikings made a surprise attack on King Alfred's castle at Chippenham, Somerset, at Christmas, January 6th, 878, forcing the Anglo-Saxon king to flee. Alfred took his family, including eldest daughter, Athelfled, to safety in nearby woods before making his way to Athelney, at the time only accessible by boat. The island was uninhabited and thickly covered with older trees and home to a variety of wild creatures. Archaeological digs and written chronicles indicate that during Alfred's use of the island, it was linked via a causeway to the nearby village of East Ling. The island was protected by a semicircular stockade and an Iron Age ditch, an existing fortification 
of which Alfred would have been aware when he chose the island to plan his next moves. He began strengthening these ancient defences. Archaeology revealed metalworking took place at Athelney too, as the king equipped his army for conflict against Guthrum and the Vikings. King Alfred the Great spent a mere four months strategizing as to how to defeat Guthrum. He hatched a plan to unify and bring together all the kingdoms of England, and called his men together at Egbert's Stone. Alfred and his army resoundingly defeated Guthrum's Vikings at the Battle of Eddington in May of 878, and the Treaty of Wedmore was signed, establishing boundaries for the kingdoms of Guthrum and the kingdom of Alfred. But of far greater significance, Guthrum agreed to become a Christian, taking the name of Ethelstan, with Alfred as his godfather. It was said the baptismal font at Alla Church, a few miles from Athelney, was where the Viking leaders' christening took place. Guthrum's Christianity added weight to the oath he had taken, a solemn oath to honour the peace treaty. After his victory, Alfred founded Athelney Abbey on the island in 888, which survived until the dissolution of the monasteries in 1539 under King Henry VIII, when it was broken up and the building material sold off cheaply. Alfred went on to implement the plans he formulated on Athelney Island to unite all the kingdoms of England. He remains the only English king to be called the Great. Riding my bicycle as a child, I could still make out the Iron Age landworks that the Anglo-Saxon king developed. But the only reminder of the significance of Athelney is the unprepossessing Alfred Monument, which marks the spot where the fort and abbey once stood. At primary school, like many British schoolchildren, I learned the story of Alfred burning the cakes. Alfred, on the run from the Viking hordes, takes refuge in the home of a peasant woman. She asks him to watch her cakes, small loaves of bread, baking by the fire. But distracted by his problems, he lets the cakes burn and is roundly scolded by the woman, who has no idea who he is. In 1985, as a tiny boy, I took part in the 300-year anniversary events of the Battle of Sedgemoor. I was dressed in homemade 17th-century attire. My mother fashioned me a little waistcoat out of corduroy and made me an authentically blousy shirt. My cavalier-style hat was shot-bought, but my dad and I made a musket from a plank of wood, which I varnished all by myself. The sealed knot, a company that reenacts famous British battles, brought the conflict to life. This captured my imagination, and I could no longer cycle the lanes around the village of Western's Island without seeing the ghosts of the rebels and the royalists going hammer and tongs at one another in the farmer's fields. So, what was the Battle of Sedgemoor all about? The so-called Monmouth Rebellion of 1685 also known as the Pitchfork Rebellion due to the makeshift agricultural weaponry of the mostly amateur peasant army, began in Lyme Regis, Dorset, 
and was finally crushed in the same year on Sedgemoor. The Raggle Taggle army suffered a setback at Canesham near Bristol and were refused entry to Bath and headed for Norton St Philip. What sparked this rebellion against the crown? Well, on the throne in 1685, following the death of Charles II, was James II, Charles's brother and a Roman Catholic. Charles had regained royal power following the collapse of the Commonwealth and dismantled the political and religious changes established after the English Civil War. The country was divided. The Republican sentiment was still strong, but many despised the austere Puritan rule, which banned many forms of celebration and jollity, such as the theatre. The vibrancy of Restoration comedy was a celebration of the end of this period. But Republicans feared that James would bring about a return to full Roman Catholic rule, snuffing out nonconformism, which had already started to feel persecution under the Church of England monarch Charles II. This sentiment was especially strong in the West Country, so the Duke of Monmouth, Charles II's illegitimate son, hoped to lead a Protestant peasant uprising and overthrow Catholic James. Monmouth was supported by Republicans and those supporting a constitutional monarchy. People from Somerset, Dorset and Wiltshire joined the rebellion. Most of them were non-conformist Christians. However, other rebels were disaffected due to a serious economic recession which had recently hit the southwest. Most were labourers, artisans or mill workers. At Norton St Philip, a skirmish with royalists had this pitchfork army falling back to Froome. Ultimately, they headed off to Wells and across the Somerset levels towards their last stand at Sedgemoor. This was now a serious battle that raged for several hours, but the amateur army of Monmouth was no match for the professional soldiers of the king. The Duke of Monmouth himself was found naked hiding in a ditch by the king's men and later executed. While many men were slaughtered that day, more died in the weeks that followed. A vicious repression followed the uprising, famously known as the Bloody Assizes, led by bloody Judge Jeffreys, a Welshman who was sadistic in showing no mercy to captured rebels. In Wells alone on a single day, 500 men were tried and almost all sentenced to death. Twelve executions took place at Norton St Philip. Rebels from Froome, mostly lowly mill workers, were hung, drawn and quartered at Gore Hedge, near the top of Bath Street in that town. Luckier rebels were transported to the West Indies. Even the families of some schoolgirls at Taunton, who had created a banner to welcome Monmouth, had to pay a large ransom for their release. In the decades and centuries that followed the Battle of Sedgemoor, many people have experienced unsettling paranormal activity on the site. Farmers and local people have reported hearing the sound of galloping horses across the battlefield or laboured breathing, perhaps of injured, dying rebels in the dark night. Still others have heard the sound of men solemnly intoning hymns as they faced their fate and ghostly cries of, come on over, as the rebels were tempted by the royal army over the ditches and rhines. Even the Duke of Monmouth has been alleged to appear in the field on the anniversary of the battle, still trying to escape.
stave than the black smock. Tales of ghostly Sedgemoor rebels are not the only supernatural stories from Sedgemoor. One I enjoyed as a child, which I think I first encountered in a Peter Underwood book, was the story of the Black Smock pub. The Black Smock has now been converted into a private residence, but for many centuries was a public house which would serve rough cider sure to put hairs on your chest. The unusual name comes from an incident that occurred there some time in the 17th century. Near to the pub was a tiny cottage occupied by an old lady. She kept herself to herself, tending her herb garden and animals, and rarely interacted with other inhabitants of the small hamlet of Stave on the Somerset levels. Her secrecy called locals to speculate as to who and what she was. Her herb garden was extensive and she would dry her crops and place them in neatly organised rows of glass jars on rickety wooden shelves inside. Occasionally, a mother, scared for the health of a sick child, would knock on the thick oak door of her hovel and ask nervously for a remedy. Barely murmuring a word, the old lady would busy herself spooning quantities of dried herbs into little muslin bags and with gestures and a few words indicate if the concoction should be delivered as a poultice, a tea or a syrup. She never wanted payment for her amateur apothecary work, waving away hands offering coins. How effective her remedies were, I do not know, but it is said mothers witnessed near miraculous improvements in their sickly children. But the men of the village, who would congregate in the pub drinking gallons of rough scrumpy, were less convinced by the old woman. To them, after drunken nights of deliberation, with fists banged for emphasis onto rickety wooden tables, she was clearly an adept in the black arts, almost certainly a witch. Yet, when they sobered up, their attention turned to more mundane things, such as ploughing fields and harvesting crops. One evening, however, the men went further. Buoyed by a particularly potent pot of cider, the men decided they would find out about this witch. Flaming torches were lit, pitchforks and scythes were fetched and brandished high. The drunken posse advanced on the old woman's cottage and hammered hard on the old oak door. Come out, come out witch, open this door or we'll smoke you out. The woman sat beside her unlit fireplace in the pitch black, unmoved. Witch, witch, witch. The old men outside chanted in an intoxicated chorus. The woman did not flinch. One of the men shrugged his shoulders elaborately and sighed. Come on, lads, let's head home. No, another piped up. We'll finish what we came here for. So they hammered harder on the old oak door, now using shoulders, now using the trunk of a felled tree. The old woman did not flinch. Even the tough old door could no longer repel the blows and the lock gave way. The door swinging wildly on its hinges and crashing into the wattle and daub wall with a thump cracking the plaster. Get her! The men lunged forward, arms outstretched. Sprightly, 
She slipped into the unlit fireplace, a space surely too small for even her tiny frame, and scrambled up, her white smock turning coal black as she slithered swiftly through the soot-lined chimney. Outside, came a cry. The men surrounded the cottage. There, pointed someone. The old lady, backlit by the light of a silvery full moon, stood statuesque on a thatched roof and surveyed the mob with a calm resignation. A younger man began a scramble up the side of the house, the craggy walls providing places for fingers and toes. The woman watched his ascent blankly. Higher and higher he came, until his hand was within reach of grabbing her bony ankle and pulling her tumbling down. But the younger man froze, paralysed. He no longer felt his fingers and toes, and soon felt the sensation of falling backwards from the roof. Down, down, down he fell, until his head cracked sickeningly against a rock in the herb garden. No, son! screamed an older man, his father, who rushed forward. It was no use. Nothing could be done for him. Get her, came a shout. The drunken mob, now drunk on vengeance too. Rocks were thrown, a salvo of stone, some hitting their target. The woman bent her legs, assuming the posture of one about to dive. She's got to jump, boys! This she did. But as the men rushed forward to set about their prey, the woman shrunk, smaller and smaller. When she finally hit the ground, she was no longer a woman at all, but a hare. She darted through the legs of the men and out across the fields beyond, and was never seen again. Thank you.